0: In the last 20 years, Norway has won more Olympic medals per capita than any other nation. Take away the Summer Games and in Winter Olympics alone, Norway produces one Winter Olympic medal for every 178,000 of its citizens, an average over 20 years. None of this feels surprising to anyone who follows Nordic skiing. But since the 1990s, Norway has built the most efficient Olympic sports development model in the world comfortably. It is the focus on sports programmers worldwide today. The United States is formidable in pure medal count, but in terms of human resource efficiency to win those medals, it's a long way from Norway's impressive system. Again, in the last 20 years, Norway has used about 180,000 Norwegians to produce a single Winter Olympic medal, where it has taken the United States 10.7 million in Winter Olympics to do the same. An American has been a pivotal player in Norway's institutional understanding and documentation of its own training efficacy. It's hard to imagine an English-language podcast on endurance sports existing without that American on it as a guest. I first stepped onto a treadmill to test my metabolic exercise functions in 1989 at 17 years of age. I've been enthralled with scientific sports performance metrics ever since then. Despite that fascination, I have never felt bound to a textbook definition on exercise science. I have always recognized the fluid art of training people. But as Per Nielsen pointed out in an earlier Threshold episode, there are a lot of physiological truths established by science from which to build a more sound training methodology than mere trial and error. Exercise physiology applied to sport performance has turned into a big deal since 1989, if you hadn't noticed. With Polar, Garmin, and even Apple in on the optimal training performance game, the backwater semantics of sports performance science from back then has entered the mainstream by comparison. Still a gap I've always sensed between methodology, experience and science hasn't been universally spanned nor clearly understood in a business that is trying to standardize something that probably isn't universal and may never be, the practice of optimal personal training response. So many people have done so much great work and I don't mean to diminish anyone's contributions here, but sometimes it takes a certain kind of person to come along with just the right mix of experience, education, attitude, personality, communicative art, and a contemporary grasp for how things have developed to take an understanding to a new place. In my 30 plus years in this realm, no single English speaking person I've come across marries the science world with high performance coaching better, or should I say more gracefully than our guest today, Dr. Steven Seiler. If you don't know who Dr. Seiler is, I invite you to Google search his name, Steven with a PH. You will find enough to keep you busy for at least the next month if you start there. Because of that volume of material already at your fingertips, this episode of Threshold chips away at Steven Seiler, the man himself, with a little foray into the world of training, of course.
1: Dr. Steven Seiler, welcome to Threshold. Well, thank you. What a great name for an endurance po- or a podcast, <laughs> at least. I don't know if it's an endurance podcast, but it, uh, it's a good name.
0: Yeah, well, thanks. I'm I'm glad. We, that was kind of one of the things we struggled with when we when we conceptualized this. So, so I appreciate that, especially coming from you. Um, so, you know, th- there's all kinds of stuff all over the internet, and I, I'm going to get into all that over the course of this podcast. But, doctor, S- but Dr. Siler, first of all, I think the most interesting thing to me when I when I and by the way, thanks thanks for coming on. I, I you know I really <laughs> oh, appreciate it.
1: <laughs> no worries. Oh, thanks yeah. thanks for inviting me. Yeah, uh,
0: the, the most. In- now you're you're a native Texan, correct?
1: Yeah, well, officially born in Berkeley, California, which I like because it makes me I can, you know, have a little hippie culture part in me. But then I grew <laughs> up I grew up in Texas and also Arkansas.
0: Okay. Well, there's no doubt we can still hear a little bit of that and you've got a little bit of that that drawl in your in your voice, which I think is really yeah, I, charming. I, I hear you.
1: I, <laughs> Can't, can't, you can take the take the Texan out of Texas, but you can't take the dialect out of my voice. So,
0: <laughs> so you're you're a Texan and, and an Arkansanian and a, and a Californian, but you're in Norway and you're working with endurance athletes as a sports scientist. Um, that's just to me that that could be a podcast and just unpacking it. But briefly, just kind of tell us how you ended up where you are. You're in Kristiansand, is that right, Kristiansand? Yes. In, in in Norway right now. How did, how did you get there? How, you know, how did you end up where you are?
1: <laughs> well, you know, okay. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you the extent, a little bit extended version. I was doing my PhD in Austin. I was working with rats. I was, I was <laughs> doing pretty basic stuff where I was removing the, the hearts from rats under full anesthesia. Just, just so we know, and I was simulating heart attacks and all this stuff. So I'd kind of moved away from my real love which was training in sports and i was training for rowing at the same time and anyway and i had a girlfriend and there was a breakup and i was feeling sorry for myself and so i go to this sports medicine conference which is one of the biggest in the world uh, american college of sports medicine and i just happened to meet a norwegian uh, a woman and uh I, it was definitely not love at first sight for her at all but we did <laughs> we did talk a lot and uh ended up ended up exchanging this was I, I had email barely I was able to borrow the email system of my advisor uh, this was 94 three, four. Mm-hmm. anyway uh, and so we started exchanging emails and, and then and then letters and, and and just long story short a year and a half later I moved I moved here after I finished my PhD and uh, she was also she had a master's in sports science. I did a PhD, I had a PhD. We still work in the same faculty. We were married for twelve years, have two children. Uh, we're we're no longer together, but we live three hundred meters apart and and uh, function well. And in fact, today I got I got my vaccination, my first stick, and she got hers at the same time. So we were both there. <laughs> And so we're chatting about, you know, whether we'll be able to f- travel next in September and so forth. So anyway, so that's how that all happened. And, and um, uh, I don't regret any of it, uh, you know, even though we're no longer married. But uh, wonderful, just nothing about it that I regret. But it, that's what brought me to Norway. And that's what uh, kind of pulled me back into that traditional sports science that I that I fell in love with.
0: So that's over, that's, we're over 25 years ago. You've been in, so you've been there over 25 years.
1: Yeah. 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 90, moved here in October, 95.
0: Okay. And, and how did you get your job? Like, did you get, are you in the same job you had when you got oh,
1: there? Yeah. Now we're really getting into the weeds. Well, man, you know, and this is kind of funny because <laughs> you, you've been in Finland as an American. Yeah. I came over, you know, and, and let me tell you, I, you know, University of Texas PhD program, when I was there, it was, it was the, the, one of the best absolutely i mean we had we had phd candidates from all over the world that came there and uh it was competitive it was it was good it was we were publishing when we when our professors stood up to speak at conferences everybody Mm -hmm. listened you know and so i just kind of assumed that everybody knew that hey i've been trained there you know and that (laughs) means i'm pretty smart and i I was uh, i had won a fellowship and all this stuff and then i get to norway and they're like uh university of texas What you know what is do you have any pedagogical skills (laughs) and i I literally i was like all of a sudden i went from thinking i was kind of you (laughs) know kind of pretty good to they didn't even know enough about my academic background to even care they just and so i i just kind of started on the bottom and i was the first person with it with a phd in the sports science department because it was a teaching it was Mm -hmm. a a teaching school. It was, you know, they were teaching physical education. They were preparing uh, physical education teachers, and so here comes this sports scientist who's here. And so <laughs> they were like really skeptical of me, but they gave me n- no job, but they gave me an office to sit in. And I kid you not, that office was it had been a uh, a storage room, and it had been where the the cleaning people would go and smoke. <laughs> seriously i'm not kidding you so there was this there was this smell of smoke in the walls there was no window so they they literally placed me in this, this this uh equipment closet or whatever you call it but you know they gave me an email address they gave me an office to sit at and some shelves to put my books on and i was and that's how i got started and then slowly they figured out okay he's not so scary he's not a threat <laughs> he's he's trying to learn norwegian and i started teaching and 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 then just it kind of went it but it took me six i think in 2001 so about five and a half six years from the time i started doing little part-time stuff to being given a full position a, a you know a tenured full position it was a six-year process and yeah. at that point the uh the 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 uh, departmental lead came in and said you know what i think we're just going to have to give you a full-time job because if we don't you can sue us pretty soon uh, <laughs> <Don't you laughs> so, <from Scandinavia? laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: because there was some rules about how long you could be on a part-time and get, or on a uh, yeah. um, uh, what do you call it a non-tenured engagement all this stuff anyway so he just said i think we got to hire you and uh, so, so i literally never i never actually applied for any job there which is kinda it's just kind of it's funny
0: it's funny because we've had about three or four of those exact same moments just in one year in Finland. We're like, you know, we have to do this for you or we're going to get in trouble. You know, right. the government, you know, it's like, okay, we'll take it. You oh, know? you mean, so
1: I have rights that I <laughs> yeah. don't know about? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> well, that's, that's, great. that's how it was. And and uh, and I'm still here. And then I, 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 you know, slowly rose the ranks and yeah. we got it. Professor status and then I ended up becoming the dean of the faculty for four years and then actually I was four years the the vice chancellor for research and development for the entire university, so I guess the Texas boy eventually got accepted into the into the fold, you know, but it took time.
0: Well, your background and currently doesn't look like a smoking, uh, smoking broom closet. So that's 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 a step forward. <laughs> but, but
1: but that's what I I think that's kind of important for people to understand and uh, in general. And I say it to my son. I say it to whoever will listen. I said, man, when you're starting out, you say yes. Mm-hmm. You, you yeah. just say yes and do, <laughs> it. and 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 get your feet wet and get some experience. Because you, I, I told my son just the other day. I said, son, you never know who's watching. Yeah, you never know who's who's checking you out, and so you when you perform, you don't you don't close doors for yourself. So I guess that that was my attitude was just, I I can even remember thinking when I moved to Norway, I said, don't don't jaywalk, don't do anything stupid, you know, (laughs) because I had so much respect for the reality that I was the foreigner now, right? Yeah, and and I had to I had to show great respect for their traditions, their culture, Mm -hmm. and 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 play by their rules.
0: And and I found it and correct me if you don't feel the same way, but I found that being an American in Europe, they really appreciate that when you do as an American, especially like you, there's kind of a special treatment. You get, you get kind of like an aha moment. Like they trust you because you, you actually give their culture some reverence, which they don't expect from Americans necessarily. I,
1: yeah, I think that's true. I think that's almost true all around the world.
0: Yeah. Well, this is great. Cause you set up the, the, the broom closet. Uh, it's, you know, to where you are now really sets up a great segue because my next question was, uh, you know, how has being in Norway specifically shaped both your life in general and specifically as it pertains to your career? I mean, let's let's say you were still in Texas or or anywhere in the United States um, and doing the same work you're educated to do. What do you suspect might be the difference between your professional self having never set foot in Norway versus actually have, having done so?
1: Oh, uh, it's a really good question. And I have reflected on it a little bit because mm-hmm the nature of academia in the united states is just that is is it is very uh i want to say the first word came to mind was cutthroat but it's it's competitive and the nature of hiring is that you have maybe a nine-month contract and then you have three months that's on what's called soft money so you're constantly hustling for uh funding uh for research funding so, if you want to do research, you have to have external money, and and what ends up happening is, of course, you ch- you follow the the pot of gold, and it's not in sports, not in mm-hmm. sports science research, right. it's in health health related research, right. it's in clinical aspects of the obesity epidemic, you know, and 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 lifestyle diseases and so forth. So, had I been in the United States, I would have probably been somewhat frustrated because I would be still saying. Ah, uh, you know, I remember my good old youth when I was so mm-hmm. in love with with the, the training process and how it works and the physiology and and yeah. Pavel Comey and the Bing Saltine from Sweden and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But true. I'm doing da, 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 because that's where the money is. And and right. so I do believe that is, that is, I sense that in a lot of my American colleagues. And so I feel I've been fortunate. Now, it's competitive here, too, but there has mm-hmm. been more scope for doing uh the things i do which have been connected to high performance sport and 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 so forth so i've been fortunate there
0: so so let me let me just set this up uh in somewhat of a visual fashion when you were sitting in the broom closet (laughs) trying to get your foot in the door i'm assuming there was already a big uh uh, there was a freight train rolling already in Norway with a lot of sports science going on. You just weren't on that freight train yet. Is that is that an accurate statement, or has Norwegian is that
1: yes and no? I would say it was. I was. Uh, if we really look at it in detail, if you look at Scandinavia and where the real sports science was going on that I had read about, it was in Sweden. You know, so really, Norway was not in the in the heat of the of the there there was there was there is a german uh, excuse me a norwegian sports university um, but it was it was still mostly teaching preparing teachers but then it they really kicked in about 15 yeah 15 18 years ago and really started transforming themselves and and they are now a top uh, research institution but I can also say that I was actually kind of part of mm-hmm. some developments here in Norway because uh, there was some sports scientists who started pushing uh, a certain kind of interval training there was, mm-hmm. it was really popular four times four I don't know if you ever remember four I times do. four minutes do you okay well and this was going on and and it was just like all intervals forget everything else you know just do intervals do four times four minutes uh interval training and do four times four reps in the strength room literally that's that was just the perfect solution that was what they were selling well the the norwegian olympic federation was kind of scratching their head they said well this is this is." baloney this is not how our athletes train we've won multiple gold medals in numerous endurance sports and nobody trains like that (laughs) Uh, but but they didn't have the data they didn't have any scientific publications to throw down on the table and say you know i'm calling your bluff here Uh, so i got hired by the olympic federation because by then i had done i had published some work related to uh, how elite athletes were actually training so they said, you know, they, they brought me into the into the the Inner circle for a while and that was that had not happened because I had worked with Dutch speed skaters I was kind of on the outside as a Texan and I had worked mm-hmm. with the enemy in a way and so but then they brought me into the fold and and I've been in the fold ever since and uh And we really, you know, we started using the immense data that had been collected. You know, they had tested athletes for decades. They had so much data, so much knowledge about the training process. But then we started systematizing it and we started publishing both case studies and experimental studies. And and so I think, you know, in the in the last 15 years, Norway has really climbed and and become a, a leader in sports science, I would say.
0: Would you say, would you say that? Uh, first of all, I, I want to get a, get a timeline. When did you, f- would you say you, you were invited in? Give me a year. Like, when was that?
1: Uh, I want to say, twenty around twenty ten.
0: Yeah. Okay. That that totally makes sense. Yeah. There were some things happening in Norwegian skiing that weren't weren't necessarily favorable at that time as well if you think about Murray Bjergen's breakdown, you think about some of the things, the overtraining. That's exactly right. Yeah, And they
1: were experiencing a crisis because Mm -hmm. there was this competing voice that was, and and one of my friends and colleagues who has coached at the national team, Arld Jorgensen, he's coached the national team, he's worked with uh, overtraining syndrome. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, we lost a couple of generations, two years at least, two, three years worth of really good juniors. Uh, because they just burned themselves out with all the interval training, so they they for them it was a crisis. And and, and as you na- mentioned, uh, Mara Buergen, there's a beautiful case study that's been published related to her career, and we and they focus on her best five years. But those best five years came after right. they switched out the coach. They went back to basics. You know, she was on the verge of uh, retiring in 2009.
0: I, I, I know that. Yeah.
1: So this is great. Well, yeah. So you yeah, you nailed it. it. It's exactly when it happened. Yep.
0: yep. This is, this is where, I'm this is where I'm going with the questioning. Now I'm going broader picture. Even I'm going to, I'm going to zoom up a little higher. So for Norway, for a country its size really obviously does quite well in, in endurance sports internationally, not just skiing and biathlon, but the question, um, this question can go wherever you want it to go as well. Uh, you know, you have free reign, but, um, what is your give us your sense of the role Norwegian popular culture versus the role of sports science has today and maybe over time uh, in the way the way athletes develop as athletes in Norway.
1: Oh yeah, great question. Um, from a, I, I think you can go all the way back to uh, I think they, what's his name Fritjof Nansen. Nans- he was yeah, a polar, yeah. polar explorer. Uh, and, and, and moving forward through a guy named Auslan, there's been a number of these types that have tried to keep alive the I- idea of the Norwegian as the outdoors person, the mm. outdoor explorer, uh, and even the Norwegian sports federation really tried to protect uh, and, and with skiing and orienteering and these outdoors dominant sports in the, in the uh, at the at the heart of it, they did not want to build indoor facilities because they wanted to maintain that outdoor mystique of, of sports are performed outdoors in the forest, in the rain, in the snow. and so meanwhile, Sweden was building all these indoor facilities and they became really good in in indoor in track and field and tennis and you know in lots of stuff. And, the, and, the Nor- and so Norway was, was its horse, was, the one horse it was riding was we're best outdoors, mm-hmm. sailing, uh, skiing, you know. And so things that didn't go on outdoors that needed indoor control, that needed training in the winter kind of were, were suffering. And so this was the culture and it's been this cultural cr- clash uh, as Norway has tried to protect its cultural history and, and also, this, uh, the, the, they have a word called frilusliv, which is, you know, outdoor life, uh, I guess would loosely translate it, uh, outdoor. And, and so that's the roots of it. That's the one. And the other aspect of it is, of course, a tremendous uh, egalitarianism, a, a culture of inclusion, or, or, or let's just say uh, there's a thing down here where I live called yonteloven which the, and and it is a rule that says, don't stick your head too far up. Don't, don't, (laughs) you know, don't be too good. Yeah. yeah. And and so, and and sports became this one, this kind of free area where you could actually, it was okay to win a gold medal. It was okay Mm -hmm. to be really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But along the way, when you're young, you were definitely, there was no such thing as age group, national teams, young. It was all about, and it is still all about sampling. About letting the kids do the sports they want to do, uh, not keeping a competitive table officially until they're like 13 years old, uh, you know, just a lot of things that in in the United States it's gone bananas, you know, with, <laughs> with, with age group traveling oh, teams and all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah, and okay. rankings at eight years old and that don't well, started. <laughs> yeah, so but that's just not allowed here. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's not part of the you know I'm not saying the kids don't keep score but they do the 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 governing bodies do the best they can to say look you know we want our kids to try lots of sports to have lots of fun and yes uh, ultimately if the talent's there they will start to specialize but they do it later it's yeah. more of a late specialization approach and 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 you know and we found out that yeah it, it works at least with with rare exceptions like gymnastics you know you pretty much have to specialize really early if you're going to be a gymnast but you do not have to specialize really early if you want to win a gold medal in cross country skiing, rowing, distance running, mm-hmm. uh, cycling. We we've demonstrated we've seen it time after time. In fact, it's it seems to be an advantage to have a broad platform of motor skills. It's particularly cross country skiing is a technically demanding sport. It helps to be able to use your body. It helps to be able to have good coordinative coordinative skills. So Anyway, that those are a couple of the issues that I've seen in the Norwegian culture that still are thriving. And, and I think do help to explain, you know, if you're going to be a great athlete, if you you got to enjoy what you're doing, Mm -hmm. I think you need to enjoy the process. And I think that's been a big focus for Norwegian sports is that the process is important. You need to enjoy, you need to find satisfaction in the process and through that satisfaction through that dedication to the process the medals come but the medals are not the 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 overriding goal right. for the if, if they become the goal or the only goal then usually that is the will be the downfall of the athlete because they become too externally focused uh, so let
0: me ask you this so I was, we were talking before we came on and started recording that. I did a little research. Slovenia and Norway are probably, Slovenia is a little better at summer games. They win a few more medals than Norway does on average. But really, Norway, with the fact that they win, they actually win the the outright medal count in the Winter Olympic Games. They've done it twice in the last 20 years. And it's a small country. That per capita, Norway is probably the strongest sporting nation at Olympic sport in the world. So just placing that statistic into our discussion what part do you feel in the last 20 years say since salt lake city has exercise science done to make norway that good versus the culture we've been talking about which has you know is is it the cherry on top or is it a driving force is it the frosting is it the is it the flop right
1: right the the quick history is that you know norway was just an amateur you know nation everything was all about amateurism they got their butts kicked by the Soviet Union and the East Germans and in lots of things. And then in '88 Olympics, they hit the low point where they didn't win a single uh, gold medal in the Calgary Winter Olympics. Uh, and at that point, they said, "All right, we got to do something here." So they formed this Olympiatoppen, which was kind of like the U.S. Olympic Training Center uh, idea. And the fundamental idea around Olympiatoppen was let's bring together the expertise from different sports like rowing where they had won medals like cross-country skiing or you know wrestling or whatever handball and they wanted to get them around one table and they wanted to bring the athletes together so they had a central training facility and and i think they also the other thing about it is the the best spent money when it comes to winning medals is just make it so the athlete doesn't have to work full-time so they develop some stipend uh, solutions i mean definitely norwegian athletes are probably among the poorest in the in the in the world when or in the in europe let's say it that way and then some of the sports they'd be you know they like the alpine guys they can become rich because they you know they start selling watches and Mm -hmm. sunglasses and stuff like that when they're when they're really good but uh Olympia Taupin emerged, and then of course, sports science started rallying around it, started trying to systemize the, you know, as I was speaking about the, the knowledge about the training process. And today, the the basic vision of Olympia Taupin, the number one motto is, it's best at the training process. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so it's just yeah. the the, basi- the basics, doing the basics, the, the everyday grind, being, being as, Absolutely, the best in the world, or the best they can be, at every detail of the everyday grind that leads to these gold medal uh, performances.
0: These are these are great insights. This is exactly what what I was searching for, and in, in having you on as a guest, I think this is really uh, this is really compelling stuff and, and perspective for English speaking audiences. Um, so let's. You're really well known for we'll call it the geeky methodology stuff and, and, and I want to get into that. I I didn't want that to overpower this, this conversation because I can fall into that and ask those same questions and, and I, and I, and maybe I will at some time in the future ask you on again, but let's talk a little bit. I think that if I had to characterize what I see you doing is that you are kind of becoming the spokesperson for polarized training methods in endurance sport. If not, you know, you you know, is that, is that a fairly accurate thing to say?
1: Well, I, yeah, I don't like that because I, I, I don't want to characterize myself as, as pitching anything. Uh, right, I right. do, you know, this po- I use the term polarized training to describe something I saw 15 years ago in early publications. It's also been called 80-20 training. I do think it still reasonably well describes what we see as some general characteristics.
0: Can, can I back, can I back you up just a second? Just, just for everybody, just briefly explain in, in, in a short sentence, just explain what polarized training is. I think that's a good, that's a good, well, we we'll just, keep
1: yeah, well, we just, re- we saw, we documented, we quantified that, uh, you know, most of more than eight, 75, 80% of the training that these athletes were doing was what you would call low intensity below the threshold talking pace green zone, you can name it different ways, blood, low blood lactate. They were not going out every day and training hard, you know, not at their threshold or above. They weren't, it wasn't a no pain, no gain mentality because no pain, no gain was not sustainable. Right. And that's what we were seeing was, oh, heck yeah. They, they were doing some legendary workouts, but they were also doing workouts that my colleague, said yeah i was able to run with with bjorn Daly for three hours in the forest Mm -hmm. you know and uh, and and he was a decent well-trained guy but he was not an olympic gold medalist by any stretch but when bjorn Daly was running easy he was running easy Mm -hmm. and then when he did hill intervals well good grief you better just get out of the way because it's going to be scary and and but that was this idea that they did they they did not let everything fall into this middle intensity zone this black hole as I described it and, and that's what I saw and what I was being told and you know I even observed a, a, an active cross country skier a female her sister was a silver medalist herself in the Olympics. And this this woman I've told this story, she's running and jogging in front of me. I knew that we had done a VO2 max test on her. We knew I knew her VO2 max was like 67 mls per kg, which is very good for a female athlete. And she gets to the bottom of a steep hill that she's jogging and she starts walking up the damn hill. And uh, and I you know, sorry to the the French, but it was very surprising to me. Because <laughs> I, I would have never done that. I leaned into every hill, you know, even though I suck. But but she <laughs> She did not. She walked up that hill, and then when she got to the top, she started jogging again. And, and I was I was perplexed. I was like, "Well, what's what's up? What's up with this?" But then, of course, we came, I came to understand. Well, you know, she had a purpose. She was it was a low intensity day. She was keeping disciplined about that intensity. And then, who knows what she did the next day? Probably, I could have not even had a chance to keep up with her. So, so that's this was what was emerging and that's what today is still called polarized training and, you know and we quantified it and we saw that it wasn't just in norway it was in kenya it was in 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 uh german cyclists it was in in you know just different groups that i cooperated right. with so yeah. uh it was it was this kind of this universal self-organizational property that was emerging mm-hmm. as athletes were trying to move from good to great
0: that that was really well timed because not j- just yesterday I was sending my freshman incoming freshman runners who just came off the state track meet what their easy runs should be like and I what you described is <laughs> what I what I just wrote my email yesterday is like you walk the uphills for the next month and you run at a slower pace than you've probably ever run but you were going to go long and uh, it's just it's just not so that's that's the thing it's like why do you think that we're you know this is a pretty it's not a new idea but. Here I am at fifty years old. I've been coaching for twenty years, and I still have to pound the walk up the hill for a slow run. Idea into a into a you know a high school senior. Why do you why do you think this hasn't caught on?
1: Um. Yeah, it's part culture. I do believe there is this no gain, no pain, no gain mentality in the United States. You know, I I did a a TED talk on this one time, and uh, it's it's part that i think also high school sports is part of the culprit and to a certain extent collegiate sports because you're on this time frame Mm -hmm. the the clock is ticking as soon as you start this program uh, both as in high school and college and so there's this feeling that i got to produce i got to do well i i should actually be i should be on the radar all this at least by the time i'm a sophomore and i need to be contesting for a national champion or a state championship by the time i'm a junior or else I'm really not in the running for a scholarship. So, you know, there's this, everything's accelerated. And then they get to college and it's the same thing. And they're going to do, if they're a track and field athlete, they're going to do a cross country skiing, an indoor season, an outdoor season. And so they're just working their butts off the whole time. And so I do think that's part of it. And, and when I came to Norway, one of the big differences is we don't have school sports. Mm-hmm. So there are no, there is no time frame like that. And so it's, it's kind of a different mentality. And in fact, for a long time, the, the Norwegian mentality has been that, well, we're not really that interested in junior national uh, junior <laughs> world championships, because if they peak as juniors, if they're really, really good as juniors, the chances are they're not going to take, they're, we're not going to be able to squeeze out the next 5% that is the difference between a junior champion and a senior champion, because that 5% takes time usually and it takes a lot of dedication and it will almost always be met with a certain degree of 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 unexpected failure because Mm -hmm. they will have never lost and then they they get to the senior national level and all of a sudden they're getting their butts kicked whether they're cyclists or skiers or speed skaters and they've got it they've got to pay the dues you know uh, so there's a, it's a slower time frame mentally to reaching peak performance. Now, now I think that's changed a bit. We've got skiers at 21 that are winning gold medals in the Olympics, so they are able to perform younger. But that mentality is still here, and that is that um, uh, get the process, make sure it's sustainable, and make sure that the athletes enjoy that because if they don't they will not be able to they will not be able to keep increasing the training loads to the levels that are necessary
0: and and, and to be clear this is not a new thing this is this is this is entrenched in norwegian training my, my brother went in, in 2001 went to the uh torsby ski gymnasium in sweden and, and yalo came over and trained with him from norway and And the the Swedish kids kicked the butts day in and day out of those Norwegian kids from Yalo. Uh, they didn't win any of the time trials. and in that group from Yalo was Emil Hegla Nobody no nobody knew who he was yet. He ended up yeah time yeah, so so these are things that I've seen. I mean, and even just the difference between Sweden and norway there's there's a difference there. There's a long i so the, the, the question I have for you then is, how do you, if if you talk to a high school coach in the United States, who, uh, what would you what would you tell them to convince them that this is the way to go?
1: Well, we've just seen so many results that it, it, it is possible to do well as a junior. But I think fundamentally, what the American coaches maybe just do not understand is the yin and yang of training, the 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 aspect of balancing these different stressors and and recovery and giving the athlete i can still remember as a as a, a high school athlete man i was stressed every damn day because every, <laughs> every day was intervals yeah. every day i was a 400 meter guy you know i was a long sprinter but it, it was just like pain every day and so you know how high is my lactate going to be today will i <laughs> literally will i puke on the bus going home <laughs> because I did several times and I ended up with my own seat. They just said, well, don't get near him. He throws up, you know? And so, but that was, it was just, well, that's not very sustainable. I mean, it's, you don't want to fear training every day. Um, So I, what i found is that we've got, you know, like in the rowing club here, we've, we've got uh, an Olympic hopeful and he's a national champion and so forth. And he's just an, he's got a scholarship to Yale now, and uh, and he does a lot of this easy training, but then he does the hard. It's it's sustainable and it's working. He's you yeah. know he's he's rowing a five fifty two or something in two thousand meters, which if you know rowing, he's you know for a high school kid that's pretty damn good. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but but you wouldn't know it because most days when he's on the water, he's just like whoosh. You know, just building the building the basic motor. You know, and 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 uh, and laughing with the guys and 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 enjoying and and you know what I'm saying. So it's it's I don't know. I I I use the word sustainability a lot these days because we forget that, particularly junior athletes. You know, they're dealing with puberty. They're dealing with the stresses of of being 16, 17, 18, or boyfriends, girlfriends. It just all this stuff so it's not just the stress of training it's all this academic expectations expectations from their parents their peers and so i do think that sometimes it becomes a big overload and and coaches could benefit from understanding that and creating more what should we say this a flow my daughter uses the word flow uh, yeah. She says, you know, when my training is when I've got the right balance between the easy runs and the hard runs and that she says, I I, I go into a flow state. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I think that's a good word, you know, and, and trying to help our athletes find flow yeah, uh, in their in their training experience that that every day is not a is not the purpose of every day is not to see how deep you can dig. Uh, because if you do that, you won't be able to dig very deep in the end you'll you, yeah. every hole will become a bit too shallow you know so <laughs> that, that's that's what happens you know but if you really want to dig deep then some days you don't dig very deep right. at all yeah
0: well, yeah well th- it's so um uh i want to switch the gears just to just switch the topic a little bit we've talked a lot about of kind of kind of some long-term topics maybe they haven't taken hold just about everywhere yet but they're 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 old school things that have happened for decades in, in especially in norway i'll just use norway as the backdrop so so keeping norway as the backdrop if you look at the last 10 to 20 years what uh what have been some groundbreaking things as far as tools whether it be technology and, and maybe even training methodology that you think weren't maybe as prevalent back in 2000, the year 2000.
1: Well, yeah, the, the digital digital technologies, you know, just we've moved a lot of the measurements that were the province of the laboratory. They're in the field now you know, the heart rate was one of the early ones, but now we, you know, we're, it's easy to measure blood lactate, to measure heart rate, to okay. measure power and pace pretty accurately. Mm-hmm. It's still a challenge in cross-country skiing, of course, you know, you because you've got, you, you can't really measure power right. in skiing like you can in cycling and maybe even in running now with the stride and so forth. Right. But in general, we have, I talk about this trinity of, of training, monitoring that you need. Ideally, we would like to be able to measure the external load. We would like to be able to measure and and, and then put it up against the, the so-called internal load.
0: Mm-hmm. Now the
1: internal load is the actual cost of, of performing that external load, right. whether it's, you know, 300 Watts or whatever, or a given speed on flat terrain and in skiing. And then we can measure that internally in a physiological manner, which is, you know, Heart rate, blood lactate, heart rate variability. There's a number of different tools right, at our right, disposal right. now. And we can measure it uh, psychometrically, meaning just asking, how's this feel? Right. But of course, we can systematize that using different scales like the Borg scale or the session RPE scale. You may have heard of, you know, Carl, oh, Carl yeah. Foster, who's up, was in Wisconsin for years and years doing this kind of stuff. So, so, and then when you put that together, you end up with this Holy Trinity. Yeah, <laughs> Pardon <yeah. laughs> My grandfather was a country preacher, so I learned about the Holy <laughs> Trinity. Well, I've, I've converted it to physiology, and for me, the Holy Trinity of, of training is is this triad where if i know the external load if i know the internal load physiologically and the internal load from a perception from a perceptual point of view then i've got this checks and balances system and we've never had better tools than we have now for doing that and and so to be honest you a a a true overtraining syndrome kind of diagnosis man a coach that allows that to happen should just about get fired because it just (laughs) it just almost shouldn't happen you, you yeah. know because we know enough now we have enough tools at our disposal and enough clinical yeah. case data to say to to understand how these train wrecks happen right. that they should be preventable yeah they're not they don't all get prevented but they should be nigh on to extinct now yeah uh,
0: yeah I, I would agree with that I mean I, I've put I've been putting my athletes in the lab when they arrive as freshmen for years and, and even if I don't get use it do it you know I might do it three times a year but at least it's a, it's a it's a I look at it as like a safety valve You have multiple aspects to, to push and then multiple aspects to, to, for a safety valve lack blood lactate going too high uh, you know getting a, res, a physiological response and I, and I think so one thing I was going to ask you about is these, you know, Garmin and things like that—the software they're using—they're actually they're actually measuring. They're trying to tr- triangulate, you know, percent of max VO two from a workout. What, do you, what So I, I've had I've, I've had a hard time I've had a hard time with that just personally, and I want to ask. That's the one technical thing I want to ask you about.
1: I do too. I mean, because yeah. you you the, the the downside of the digital metrics is that it's really easy to do math in a spreadsheet. You know, once you've got a bunch of you fill in a bunch of cells with data come in every second, you know, with the the files, you know, the fit files or whatever from the watches from the for whatever. Well, it is really tempting to say, oh, hmm, what happens if I multiply row or column A times column B, then I can call that stress score or I can call it load, you know, and, and if I divide it by the square root of my birth date. Then I can get something, you know, and so what you have is this development of these metrics that are they're not validated. They're not, right. uh, you know, they haven't really been put through the, the grinder, but they just they sh- emerge and, and, right. and, and they become popular. And then the scary thing, and, I, and that's not too scary. But right. then the really scary thing is if the athlete starts to ascribe to them a a validity, right. a repeatability, that's really not there. Right. And right. Then, and now they're training to these metrics. Right. That that's were exactly. never there. They're made yeah. up in the first place. Yeah. And now you have athletes going, Well, my training load score was not a pro it was 10% lower this week. What the hell? What do I do? You know, yeah. and, 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 and oh my goodness. Then we're in a then we're in in trouble. But well, that's when you I pull out the how do you
0: feel? <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, that, that's how you feel today. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and and the uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, if we go into the weeds a little bit. heart rate for example the the most common perceptual idea would be well if my heart rate's too high then yeah i need to ease off if my heart rate's 10 15 beats higher than normal that tells me i'm tired and that's true that can be true yeah yeah but it also turns out that a very common thing we see is that the heart rate is too low low yeah exactly yeah in fact I just asked, I got 800 responses on Twitter. I asked the question, What if you notice this, what do you see? That your heart rate is too high for the workload or your heart rate is too low for the workload? You see both or you've never seen either. 90% had seen at least one of those, but the, the plurality had said, no, it's the low the heart rate being too low that I see most often, right. like 40, 45, yeah, 48%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 20, 25% said heart rate too high and then about 20% said both. Right. Well, this is tricky because this means you really have to be paying attention to what's going on and triangulate the, that heart rate data up against other things to to make a proper diagnosis for sure because what the the most common error will be that they they've done a heavy volume period because this this too low heart rate will usually come after a pretty heavy uh, a, a volume load and then heart rate's a bit too low but it's submaximal intensities that doesn't feel too bad and and it and then but what do they do they say well my heart rate's low I guess I can push harder <laughs> So okay. now you, ex- you magnify the problem that's already right. emerging, which is right. this athlete, the brakes are coming on, they're becoming paras- what we call parasympathetically hyperactive, the, 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 meaning that mobilization ability is starting to, right. to go down, but right. they interpret it the exact opposite, opposite way. Right, exactly. And they accelerate right. the downward spiral. Yeah. So this is, this is one of the, if you could teach kids to, or coaches and athletes to avoid that mistake, for sure. You, you solve a yeah. lot of problems.
0: Totally. You know, I think of, I, I, I always like the low heart, low resting heart rate with a really, with a maximal effort, you can get to your top of your zone. Exactly. Those, those two things are ready. You're ready for a great performance. You're That's on what I tell. I
1: used to tell the speed skaters when I worked with them. I said, look, what we're <laughs> trying to create, we're trying to maximize your the spread between right? your exactly. lactate and heart rate yeah. when you are just really just coast, just gliding easy. And then can you produce maximum heart rate maximum blood lactate can you mobilize everything and that that gap that that spread is what we want to see and that's how we know you're ready to perform but off and the opposite is also true that when both are one's going down and the other's coming up people can't see my hands right now but i am trying to show them on the radio here what's going (laughs) on but 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 we're 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 narrowing the scope when they become over over uh or overreached, uh, stagnant or whatever, we, we kind of, we, we narrow the scope of their mobilization ability. Uh, And that, that is, that's not what you want. That's not good. No, no. Toe in the line in the state championship or in the Olympics, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you might, you know, my experience is that when that's happening as a coach, you need to react. And if, if you don't, you still might get a good race here and there, but you don't see a trend of good performances at that point. You start seeing the good race followed by the bad race, you know, you know that kind of thing. I'll
1: tell you something else because now, you know, I know you want to stick with culture, but now we're talking about training. But I was talking to this coach that, you know, I have such respect for. He's not a scientist, but he's a great coach. And, and, he, and he, we were talking about, you know, the, the other thing that sometimes happens is you get in great shape you you've got an athlete as a coach and they say you know i'm on right now i am in great shape but (laughs) there's three weeks until the next the big competition or four weeks oh how do i hold this because now you know you you, am am i too fit am i in great shape too early what do i do you know and so we were talking about that and the thing you do not do that athletes will be tempted to is they will be tempted to eat that cake that they have made. Totally, They will say, Oh, I'm in great shape. I got to go harder. I, I got to, I'm yeah. going to squeeze out a few more percent. Yeah. I'm going to do a bit more interval training. I'm going to peak a little higher and they start in Norwegian, they call yeah. it eat, eating, eating
0: cake. the cake. It, totally, totally, and then yeah. the
1: three weeks come by and they're no longer, they've okay. left that peak on the, out in the woods somewhere.
0: And, and and when you're when you're coaching, you can see that in their eyes on a good workout day, and that's when you got to put on the brakes. You got to be like, you got to grab them by the shoulders and look them in the eye and say, "You are done today."
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so you purposefully back down. You try right. to you try to hold back. You try to give them you you know like he would talk about you 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 narrow the paw the 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 rest intervals to keep their intensity lower. You know you do different things to to make it just more aerobic so that they cannot go really into that fifth gear too much because then they're eating that cake and that's what we don't want to do and you keep the easy workouts easy but that was the big thing he says when he talked with all the different athletes and they tried to kind of get a consensus about how do we hold form when we're in great shape and that's what the athletes were saying is well you don't get greedy and you don't try to you don't try to do more you don't try to intensify you 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 almost do the opposite, but you really you you. What should I say? You keep your cards close to your vest. You know, don't show your hand.
0: You know. Yeah, so throw it, You know, if if you want to just hang on to it, throw in a long, throw in a long, super easy run, throw a, you know something like that. Just j- just throw that in there, and, and tire tire yourself out a little bit so that you can get to the next week. You know. Yeah, that, but yeah. that's
1: that was it was really a wonderful discussion I had with him because it was like Love it. hard. You know this this deep tacit knowledge about a, an aspect of training that, you know, we, we don't capture in the laboratory.
0: Yeah. This has been great. I love it. I know, I know, I don't want to take, I don't want to take your entire day here. I don't want to take more time. I know your time is valuable, but I, oh, this I, is my uh, day
1: off. So I, I uh, planned for this.
0: Okay. Oh well, I love, I love these discussions. If you can't tell, I, I'm just, I'm on the edge of my seat. I love having these discussions after 20, 27 plus years of coaching and really, Um, you know, I, I think I'm very well aligned with where you are and, and, and I've seen a lot of these same things with athletes I've coached. And, um, but, but so that, that you talked about your daughter and this is kind of where I want to wrap things up. You know, I, I've worked with a bunch of physiologists. I was a national team athlete. I raced in the world cup. I've, you know, worked with many different physiologists over the course of my career. I'm friends with a lot of them still. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to offend any of the physiologists I know, but a lot of them never were coaches. They were physiologists first and foremost. We went to the lab. They helped us identify what was going on. They helped our coaches identify. You coach your own daughter. <clears throat> you're, 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 you're a lab physiologist, trained physiologist, exercise scientist, and you, you have moved into coaching. You've crossed over that line fairly comfortably. Uh, you know, what, what about what, what aspects of your, I mean, I can probably kind of read them and maybe say or not, but what do you, what do you think your, your aspects of your personality has, how kind of helped you gracefully cross that line? And, and, and how do you coach your daughter, you know, from, from that perspective?
1: Well, to be honest, there's a lot more to that story. You know, my daughter, and we've been open about this, so I can talk sure. about it, but she was first of all i was her coach way back i was her i was her coach when she was playing soccer i was her Mm -hmm. coach you know and then she became a dancer and competed for 10 years in dance and i was kind of out of the party because i you know it was kind of a female dominated uh, milieu and and so Mm -hmm. i was out of it and then then and she developed an eating disorder Mm -hmm. at towards the end of that and and so to be honest with you uh i became her coach because i wanted to make sure i kept her alive yeah. Um, I'm just being, and she would, you know, she could handle that now and she's yeah. been honest about it, but, but running was both her salvation because it was something she wanted to be able to do. and therefore she had to eat and everything to be able to run. Uh, but of course running burns a lot of damn calories. So it was right. this knife edge. And so I was protecting her. I was, I said, I'll be, I'm your coach, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and that's, and we slowly nurtured, each other back to health or she you know and and she was a good she became a good runner pretty quickly but she was still dealing with the eating stuff and and, and it took several years and i would oh, say yeah. only in about the last i would almost say only in about the last six eight months has she really kind of come over all a lot of it and feels pretty much, you know, back to normal after five years. So, so yeah, I know my daughter and I was able to coach her, but I was coaching her both as a physiologist, but also as her father, uh, you know, and finding that balance between keeping her safe and then helping her progress towards her goals. And, 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 and she's stubborn as can be, and she does her own thing. And so now at, at 23 and she's studying sports science herself, now it's kind of more of a you know i'm the how should i put this she's going to do what she's going to do you know she's going to she she is not a passive recipient of a coaching (laughs) prescription she is an active actively involved in the process (laughs) and the 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 discourse around this and so that's the relationship we have is that she's a stubborn athlete with with clear goals and and so I have to, and she has to. She said, "She said, you know, Papa, I've got to uh, to find out where my limits are. I have to cross them sometimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then come back, you know." And yeah. so that's what she does, you know. And mm-hmm. and uh, she she makes mistakes, and and recently she tried to train like uh, the ingebritsons if you you know the the menists, three oh, yeah, oh, yeah. and three three interval sessions a week, and
0: we got to have you back we got to have you back on she burned
1: burned herself out she got hurt she got she she and and we've had to pretty much start from scratch she she's you know but lesson learned you know so so that's how it's how it is and so i that coaching job is is part father part physiologist part you know coach and so and that's why i tell people look i I only coach one person because i i i can't get into those weeds with too many people and at the same time do the job of trying to disseminate science on a broader level and do research and so forth i have too much respect for the coaching process
0: well kudos to you i I think that uh i mean that's for for me as a college distance running coach this has been a, a. that's a – the disorder eating is, is – my goal when I took the job five, six years ago as the running coach and as a ski coach as well, just coaching in general is I don't – the eating disorder things have become so prevalent as part of the sporting culture – um, in so many places, and and my my goal above all else is to keep my athletes healthy. That's the first thing on my coaching my coaching um, priorities is, is that do, first do no harm, and, and I so I applaud you for the work you do with your daughter. I think that that's a that's a great um, that's a great tribute to you as a person, to you as a dad, and, and I can only imagine how that's brought you two closer. And, and it's been str- a struggle, I'm sure
1: yeah but it's also i think it's a it's both a learning opportunity and a teaching opportunity i'm really proud of my daughter in that respect that she says well you know if i can help anybody else come through this better so that's why she's open about it and she's written about it. i think it's partly therapeutic as well yeah but uh but i have learned a lot and i just didn't understand this disease i didn't i couldn't understand it my first thought was get your act together girl what are you Mm -hmm. doing you know, and, and and until you really understand what, right. how how the brain is taken captive by this um right this thought process, you know, it it is it is a it's real. It is powerful. It is debilitating. And I would much rather deal with a knee injury or a, a hamstring oh. pull. You know, uh, it, it's just that's easy money.
0: Absolutely, I, I, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. So so. But but, but, but what it hand goes hand.
1: back to what you said is health first, right? And I think right. that's that's part of the whole uh, eighty twenty or polarized training. Everything it's about, unless you have a health a platform of health and a, both physical and psychological, then you can't do all the work that's required to to climb to the top of the heap right. in right. in your sport.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Steven seiler thank you so much. It's been a gr- been a ca- uh, absolutely uh, for me it's been it's been an, an honor and a privilege to talk to you this afternoon and uh, and I hope uh, I wish you well and hope maybe we'll, we'll we'll connect down the line somewhere.
1: Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks.
0: In the individual endurance sports training realm, ego is thrown around almost as thickly as it is in academia. You combine these two realms and you'll have the environment anyone in my shoes has experienced over the last several decades. A contentious chat room full of holy grail secrets, trash-talking somebody else's methods, and general distrust. After all these years immersed in it, I think the lack of truly standardized approaches, the fact that cause and effect of training the human body is complex, and it's ever-changing, like a puzzle, and the successes and failures are snapshots of broader individual responses to commonly used training practices, this all makes this realm feel like perpetually shifting ground. We continue to find universal truth while discovering new tricks, and still overtraining is occurring probably more than necessary. Yet here's a scientist readily acknowledging that the athletes and coaches might actually be ahead of the scientists. He took an approach that flipped the dynamic, and his tone is matter of fact. He's not terribly confrontational. He simply feels like a guy sharing his juice box with you at lunchtime. It's nice. In a nutshell, he saw a trend of competitive success in Norway, recognized a slight disruption of it, and was in a position to do something about it. He went on to document how successes had been achieved in the past and studied it scientifically to give everyone some concrete science that was driven by Norwegian training instincts for generations. And it is still misunderstood, widely enough, I think, because the centerpiece of what he has documented scientifically fights against the competitive urges that get people out the door to train to be better in the first place. I think he did this at a critical time for endurance sports and sports science. That's threshold for this episode. Thanks to Dr. Steven Seiler for sharing himself with us. And thanks for listening.